The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? We have said it before on this podcast, Sean Connery's portrayal of Secret Agent 007 absolutely kicked open the door for spy hero stories in the 1960s. A new genre was literally born in 1962 with Dr. No, and the James Bond franchise would go on to long outlive United Artists' existence as a major film studio. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. Many film and TV studios scrambled to capitalize on the newly emergent spy action hero concept, and we're going to talk about the first one to capitalize on the 60s spy craze, Gold Rush. We are really excited to talk some The Man from UNCLE this week on Spies Like Us. We begin this episode with a conversation with Fred Kennedy, a fan of The Man from UNCLE television show that we met through our Facebook group. So when I originally jumped out, I saw you on Facebook um, and I saw the discussion about Get Smart and somebody made the comment this was the first time that 007 was spoofed. And I just jumped in and said, no, actually, it was the man from Uncle that was the first spoof on James Bond. In fact, Ian Fleming wrote uh, the character Napoleon Solo for the pilot. Right. He didn't write the actual pilot. He wrote the character. So there was a connection with Ian Fleming. Um, and the first season was in black and white in 1964, and it was kind of serious. It was kind of like, uh, Eastern Europe and the, the bad guys were kind of like the Eastern European totalitarians. In fact, there was one episode there where they were trying to bring thrush or somebody was trying to bring uh, Hitler back to life, right? Napoleon kills him, kind of a thing. Um, so as the year, as the seasons went on season two, uh, became in color and it started to get a little campier uh the music got really much better because as the 60s went along it got more jazzier and rock and roll and jerry Uh jerry goldsmith did the overall theme and it was the first year was kind of like militaristic with drums and so on but then like i say as the 60s went along it got little jazzier and rock and roll with the bass yeah, I was keen to see that, that, that he kind of uh, re- revamped the theme music for each season. Well, actually, he didn't. Um, he didn't like the revamping. It was a guys, a couple guys named Robert Drasnan and Gerald Freed. I have the soundtrack here. And also in the DVDs, Jerry Goldsmith did, lot, did not like the, the version to become more rock and roll and jazzy. Uh, but I loved it. It was, uh, like I say, it grew with the 60s with the heavy bass and uh, sax. It almost... Like in the third season, there's a sax solo that sounds like Bobby Keys doing Brown Sugar. You know, the that nasty sax and Brown Sugar. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the high shrill um, Hammond organ B3, you know, and brass. And it was great. But from what I've read, too, that kind of like the music tried to uh, mirror the campiness. Uh, Batman on ABC was 1966. You know, over the top campy. You know, yes. if you've so the, I guess NBC man from uncle thought, okay, we want to get in on this, but it, it got too silly. Um, they had, uh, Napoleon dancing with a gorilla, you know, doing the Watusi. They had, uh, a hiccup gas that, that, uh, you died of hiccups. It, but, surpri- uh, it surprises me to hear 
help me out with this. It kind of surprises me to hear that they were making such drastic changes to a show, which I understood to have been like a massive hit right out the gate. Right. Well, they couldn't at first they couldn't find it from what I've read. I didn't know at the time it was like nine or 10, but from what I've read about it, uh, they had a hard time finding an audience at first uh, till they changed the time. And then they got really uh, hooked with the college crowd. The college crowd uh, really liked them. And, uh, you know, they were up against Bonanza and some other big shows. Um, but it seemed to find a way in that uh, once they changed the time. What about the? I, <clears throat> I loved it. It just, it, to me, it, it, it was like growing up in the 60s with the Beatles and especially David McCowan, the Ely Kuryakin. Right. Yeah, I was reading up about him. I'm really excited to see this character. Yeah, he was cool. I mean, he was really, even though he was a little older, they featured him in like Tiger Beat and those 16 magazines. It's uh-huh. uh, kind of a, like a, you know. He, he he received more fan mail than any actor in MGM history, including wow. including uh, uh, Clark Gable and including Elvis. Wow. Yeah. I did not know. <laughs> I remember uh, he had quite a Hollywood uh, career too. I remember him, The Great Escape. He was, he was, uh, he was killed in that by a, by a Nazi running down a train and he was married to Jill Ireland. I don't know if you knew that. I and, don't know. Um, I don't know that actor. Act, she was an actress and then she married Charles Bronson and then died of cancer. So she was married to McCollum first and then, and then she married uh, Charles Bronson. Uh, but she was in a few of the uh, man from uncle shows too. And she was quite an actress on her own. You could Google her. She's blonde. And uh, yeah, married Bronson later. But, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask you about the, the transition to color um, because, I mean, I guess at the time, I mean, I know I read that they shot the pilot in color, right? But, but then the first season was in black and white. So I guess that was a time at which color was available, but was possibly like a budgetary constriction. And maybe, yeah. maybe only your prime time shows were showing up in color. Yeah, I think so. It was a big deal, uh, you know, back in the 60s, if we were ever... Because I remember we'd be out playing and we'd run inside to see the Withers, Wizard of Oz. And it was a big deal if somebody oh. had a color, color TV, especially <laughs> right. landed in Oz, you know, when it was in color. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't until about the 70s when, like, 19-inch color TVs made by RCA became a big deal, you know, and everybody in our neighborhood finally started to have them in the 70s. Um, yeah, even in – even let's see, I was born in 71, and even – up through grade school, I think typically a family would have one. If you had multiple TVs in the house, usually just one of them would be color. Yeah, exactly. And the others would be black and white. And I remember kids at school actually not believing me when I told them that we had two color televisions in my house. <laughs> <laughs> they said, no, you don't. Nobody has two. Yeah. Um, what was the first color television show, do you think? Uh, I want to say, I want to guess that it was Disney because... Disney used to have this show on Sunday night called The Wonderful World of Color, Wonderful World of Disney. Okay. So I don't know, though, you know, because they made, and I, I think NBC kind of uh, pioneered color for color TV and, and Disney was on NBC. So, But I don't know for sure if that was the first. Right. Let's put this in context uh, against uh, James Bond, who... Um... I hope you won't. I mean, I, I don't think you can disagree with me on this, like really kicked open the door yeah. for, for spy stuff. It um, did, yeah. It's, it's almost amazing to think that uh, 
audiences and and content creators couldn't really couldn't even conceive of a spy being the hero of a show right up until he came along and that's of course uh with dr no in i think 61 mm-hmm. and then um and then they were they were banging them out they're they're coming out with one like almost every year like right. i think i think the first five years they only missed one one year so they always conceived that to be like a a, a franchise um yeah. did you Brooke know Holly. Bracoli, right? I'm sorry. He was Bracoli. He Rick- was the producer. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Uh, in fact, it was. Um, that's that's why we got Sean Connery, uh, because uh, Cary Grant didn't want to sign up to do. They were asking him to sign up to do seven films right off the wow. gate. They already pl- wanted to do seven films, uh, which you know is absolutely how we do business these days. But it was kind of surprising that they were that forward thinking in 1960. And um, but uh, Cary Grant didn't want to put up with that. But Sean Connery, who was relatively unknown at the time, you know, he said, show me the money. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Cary Grant would have been too old. He wouldn't have had the staying power too, like Sean Connery. Sean Connery, right, was significantly younger than Cary Grant. Wouldn't he have been? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yes. And definitely. He have, if he took it, he wouldn't have been able to make too many of them i wouldn't think yeah because that's a good point and and uh you know being able to weather the storm uh well that was getting back to the man from uncle that was so strange i mean it was at the height of the cold war and to take a russian see uncle was supposedly um kind of like i don't know if the closest thing not quite interpool but it was this not just america but it was stationed all over the world the united network command for law and enforcement, not law enforcement. They're always talking about that. But to take a Russian, right, at the height of the Cold War, Ilya Kuryakin, and uh, have him be the co-star, like originally it was going to be the man from Uncle Napoleon, the James Bond kind of character. But then from what I have read, Ilya was such a star, was such a, uh, a you know, an attraction with the fans that they demanded more of him. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, became just as much uh, in the episodes as uh, as Vaughn. And Vaughn, you know, was more like the James Bond, more of the adult character, where Ilya was more of like the Beatles kind of younger, um, you know, uh, long haired, uh, popular with the younger ones where, you know, and they kind of played off that a little bit. But to t- that was kind of uh, to pair a Russian at the height of the Cold War. Right. Sure. Uh, as as a science fiction fan, I'm always fed the fable that um, Pavel Chekhov was like the like a real like breakout that, you know, people often credit Roddenberry, you know, with breaking that door open of of putting a Russian as a, um, you know, not a mustache twirling villain in a show. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, I think I think that's that's well, it's unfortunate that uh, that. The man from uncle is overshadowed in that respect. Well, you know, and I just saw something the other day where Star Trek was like way ahead of its time by, you know, with its multi-ethnic cast, very, very progressive that way, you know, and, and women and, uh, you know, being at home and, uh, and and Chekhov was put in, uh, to be, you know, to draw in a younger audience. That's why he has the Beatles haircut. And he's right. a younger character. And it looks to me like they were direct, like the Star Trek people were directly looking at the man from uncle and saying, wow. let's get some of that energy never, into our show. I never thought of that. Makes sense. If you think about it though, right. Yeah. Beatles haircut, Russian. 
Yeah, and then Ilya's hair got longer. Like in the fourth season, it's really long. Um, more Beatlesque, you know. But I mean, thinking, you know, that's sixty-eight, the summer of love, sixty-seven, sixty-eight. You know, right in the middle of the sixties. So, uh-huh. um, that really made sense. But uh, yeah, and I was. It's weird. Um, did you see the Man from Uncle movie uh, a couple years ago? With, 2015, uh, Guy Ritchie. No, I have not, but I plan with to. Enrique Bell and uh, right, okay. Hugh Grant played the Mister Waverly. Um, let's see, who was the the Ilya guy? Oh, Army Hander, Hammer. You never saw that. I have not seen it yet. Okay, it's good, and they say I thought it was pretty good, but it's it's a prequel, and I think one of the reasons why it didn't do better is because it was like in the summer, like right between two big block. Blockbusters. I want to say a Batman or a Jurassic Park or kind of a thing. And it got kind of overlooked, but it's a prequel. And it starts out with um, Ilya being in the KGB, right? And Napoleon being in the CIA. And they come together to solve this. And at the very end, I don't, it's sort of a misnomer and they don't even say it's a prequel, but at the very end, they have, uh, almost where the credits are, they have, um, what did I say? Hugh, Hugh Grant. Yeah. Playing the Mr. Waverly. They throw up in the credits that how at the very end, Hugh Grant brings them both together to start this new organization called uncle, but throughout the whole movie, it's not uncle. But what's really ironic is that, um, Ilya. Okay. Is being army handers character has to watch this Gabby who would later be at the end of the movie. We find out she's really an uncle. So the irony is the girl from uncle came first in this. Now they had a show. Did you know that a girl from uncle was Stephanie powers? Did you know that? I did read a tiny bit about it. Okay. That was real campy. That was right around the same time as the third season campiness. But I thought this is really weird because you find out, of course I just did a spoiler. You find out at the end of the movie that this Gabby is in Uncle, right? Sort of undercover. Mm-hmm. And she's the girl from Uncle, <laughs> which would come later in the TV story. You know, I mean, so it's weird. And you, so the whole thing's a prequel. So I don't know if they're ever going to do another one. It was who's uh, Richie, the guy, Madonna. Guy Richie, yeah. Yeah, I think he directed it. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. You know, he's working on two spy movies right now. Yeah. Um, one of them is a, a World War II and a something else. I think they're after him to, to play the next Bond. Who's that? Um, Cavell. Okay. I mean, he's one of the ones that... I see, I see lots of lists. <laughs> you, know, you know, I had a really interesting, all this back and forth about the, you know, the next bond, should it be female or a person of color? And I thought <laughs> the way demographics are, okay, the British have a sizable um, Islamic population of people of color. All right. So it would kind of make sense if the British did have a person of color being the next 007. Um, demographically, uh, and the imperialist British, British, I could see them wanting to possibly infiltrate a Muslim country, and I could see them doing it with a person of color being the next James Bond. I would love to see Idris Elba do it. 
I, yeah. I really would. That that would be that would be my dream pick. But but the thing is, you know, what I'm saying demographically and politically, um, it would make sense because they have a sizable Islamic population, right? So I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to have um, an African British uh, James Bond in that way. I don't know. Call me crazy. No, I'm with I'm with you on that. But uh, I think I, I can't. I can't go female with Bond. I don't, personally, okay. All right. there's just too much. There's too much uh, machismo, like intertwined, yeah. you know, directly into the DNA of the character. Not that I don't like, you know, female action heroes. I really yeah. do. I really do. In fact, I've kind. I'm kind of hoping that. Uh, do you like the Mission Impossible movies? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the female character that showed up in the last two that is absolutely as is portrayed as being as badass as Ethan Hunt. Uh, if Tom Cruise were to ever decide he's getting too old for that, if she was still up for it, I would love to see them just straight up continue that series with her uh, yeah. at the helm. Uh, yeah. I think that would be really exciting. Tom, so, yeah. Cruise, Tom Cruise is to me. Uh, he just was so miscast as not only Jack uh, Reacher, but the vampire Lestat. I mean, have you ever read the Vampire Chronicles in Rice? I still like him in that movie. Right. But have you read those books? Uh, just the first one. Just the first one. Okay. Lestat is a very tall, larger than life, androgynous kind of figure with long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And I think... I mean, and even Anne Rice was against it. Anne Rice was kind of won over afterwards, right? That's but true. Even in the, then you go to the Jack, Jack Reacher. Um, he's a larger than, I don't know if you've read any of those books, but he's this a large kind of G.I. Joe kind of character. And I just didn't think. Cruz did the best he could, I thought. But I don't know. Uh, I, I just thought, according to the books, I thought they were kind of miscast in that way so uh you go with female action heroes uh everybody talks about sarah connor but i remind people that ripley was the first hollywood female action uh hero people forget about her don't they she's the reigning queen as far as characters go yeah way before sarah connor right yeah as far as actors go though i'm such a huge fan of charlie's they're on yeah 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 but i mean as far as a milestone you know at first i think people forget about that ripley did it way back when yeah well i don't forget because that's like that's right in my wheelhouse i'm like born in 1971 so i love those alien movies yeah me too me too the first one was like hitchcockian suspense and the second one was more action-oriented well i like i like i really like that in a franchise um yeah is is when like when they have a concept but like each movie you put a different directing style onto it um i you know three was garbage but uh and i know four was kind of divisive but i really like four um and i'm even on board for for the newer ones uh and then mission impossible is another really interesting franchise in that respect in that uh you know, except for the last two, which were done by the same guy, uh, each of them has like a, a very different auteur director at the helm mm-hmm. uh, between, you know, Brian De Palma, John Woo, Brad Bird, um, very different styles, but they're all like taking a different stab at the same kind of story. 
Um, yeah. Well, you, which, you mentioned the, the Palma. I remember back in the late seventies, there was the big debate who was going to be the next Hitchcock, who was going to take over. Cause they were both Car John Carpenter and Brian De Palma were both disciples of Hitchcock. And it's like, who was going to be, you know, the one, you know, and they, I don't know. They both kind of, I don't know if you remember or reading about that, but that was the big debate. John, is John Carpenter or De Palma going to take over from Hitchcock or be the next Hitchcock kind of a thing? So that kind of panned out. Right. Petered out, I think you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I think I think the most Hitchcockian, the most Hitchcockian, the most post-Hitchcock Hitchcockian movie in my opinion, that I've seen would be uh, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley. Okay, I thought that I thought that's a I thought that's a great movie, and it just it just it, it I just screamed it. Hitchcock at me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so update. Um, Dave did uh, text me a little bit ago. Uh, you know, he he had to work late. I'm glad we're having so much fun with this conversation. You sound like you're full of energy, <laughs> and I'm 66 years old. <laughs> glad to hear it um because uh yeah we're gonna we're gonna watch that episode when dave gets in here oh so yeah. okay my new question um there how many seasons are there of the man from uncle four Only? three and a half really because they they uh canceled it in the fourth season or four you know in the mid in midstream only four. So I don't know. I'm starting to get confused here. Like I, on one hand, I keep, I keep reading and hearing like it was like a monster hit at the time, but then maybe they just shot themselves in the foot by trying to adapt and turn it into something that it wasn't meant to be. That's the conventional wisdom that when it went campy and try to copy Batman, that that killed it. And then when they try to write it um, in the fourth season, it was too late. That's at least the conventional wisdom. Okay. You know, because they did try in the fourth season to get a little more serious, but like I say, they lost, they lost their audience, and I wasn't aware of any of that at the time. I was just a kid and stuff, but I just from reading, you know, uh, the hindsight. So was it? You say you say you were nine or ten uh, when the show came out. Was it uh, like literally like your favorite thing ever, or yeah. or did you just kind of come around to it later? It was my favorite thing. Yeah, I was just really and like the music really turned me on, you know, and that's why I have a mixed feeling about the third season, because I love the music in it so much so that I bought the soundtrack. Now, a characteristic of each show, which I thought was, I don't know, kind of a, annoying, but they felt that they had to do it. I don't know if you've read this, but a characteristic of each show would be to always have an innocent, usually a woman, many times a suburban housewife, swept up mm -hmm. with one or both of them in the adventures. Um, you know, um, you, you know, like a G whiz, golly, you know, G Willikers kind yeah. of a thing, you know, and so, um, so they, they almost every, every episode, they have that innocent, you know, housewife usually tagging along with them. Right. Well, you know, that, uh, that could feed into like the whole like Hitchcock era proto spy genre where you, you know, they, they didn't realize they could just literally have a spy be our hero and be our audience surrogate. Right. Um, and so like, that's why like, you know, the man who knew too much and stuff that comes before bond, like you start getting into some kind of spy ish territory, but the main character is always, you know, an every man uh, or every woman. 
right. uh, that's in there. So I, I guess they felt, and, and you say you're just uh, eh, meh about that. I just thought it got tiresome after a while. I wanted to see more of uh, more of an action kind of a thing rather than have the silly look. And I, and I know they thought, you know, they had to cater to the audience that way, but I just thought it was uh, oh, tiresome after a while. Uh, do they have, I, I understand that um, like there's very few recurring characters, uh, but were there ever any like, you know, thrush villains that kind of, you well, know, showed up multiple times. Oh yeah, stuck yeah there, was a bunch of them. there was a bunch of them. Um, one of the weird things was in the girl from Uncle. Um, they had Noel Harrison. Uh, let's see what was the one I saw. Um, Noel here. Oh yeah, in the Galata affair, uh, they had Noel Harrison, who would later be t- uh, teamed with Stephanie Powers. And in the Galata affair, they Napoleon for whatever reason can't make it. And Joan Collins is just so young and beautiful. And she plays two roles. And this was a whole spoof on My Fair Lady. You know, the, um, the whole uh, premise of My Fair Lady is where those two guys have the bet whether they could take, uh, turn this street urchin into a lady. You know that premise, right? Of My uh, Fair Lady. Well, I've seen, I've seen, um, I saw the Eddie Murphy movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. So um, My Fair, it's, and there's a, a play called the egg and I too, that was based on, but the whole idea is these two guys have this bet. Cause they, and Audrey Hepburn plays the gal in the, uh, in my fair lady. And she's a street girl with a strong Cockney accent. And the uh, Rex Harrison and this other guy, Rex Harrison thinks that he can turn her into a lady. Right. And the other guy says, no, no way. And, uh, so that's the whole premise of the movie. So anyway, in the Galata affair, Joan Collins is in it and she plays, both roles you know she plays the baroness you know the lady and she mm-hmm. plays the street gal um and thrush uh does a, the old switcheroo right and uh so anyway but the point is mark slate the character played by no oh, so it's it's one of those things where like you know somebody uh you know somebody is like stroking their chin at some point and saying the resemblance is striking <laughs> yeah but you know one, of, one yeah, of those yeah. things like hey yeah, we could yeah. we could do this yeah and they do see but both uncle and thrush want to do the switcheroo right and it's like which one is the real one so eventually the point is she she does uh learn the ladylike so they can't really tell who's acting and who's not and uh for example in my fair lady the rain in spain falls mainly on the plane in this one it's like um the police in Greece do something. In, in the <laughs> right. Yeah. What's the name of this episode? I've got to see this. The Galata Affair. Okay. I'm going to put that on my list. Jo- Joan Collins. I probably, The only reason why I didn't choose that is because Napoleon wasn't in it. And Napoleon shows up in the end and, and gets Joan Collins. Napoleon, Napoleon. being the, the main character, yeah, the main yeah, American he, character played right. by Robert Vaughn. Yeah. So he, I don't know, he would, whatever, couldn't make it or whatever. I think... I think Stephanie Powers was in a few uncles too. You know how they go back and forth um, with their characters because she was the girl from Uncle, but that only lasted one season, I think. Can I just um, can I just can I just throw out that Napoleon Solo is simultaneously like one of the coolest and stupidest names I've ever heard yeah, for a hero? Yeah. Well, it's, that's yeah, that's what's his name? The James Bond guy came yeah. up with that name. 
Oh, Fleming. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. And that was part yeah. of a, a whole lawsuit kind of thing that maybe yes. was kind of holding the thing up. Because yes. uh, let's see, originally they, they, they wanted to call it Ian Fleming's Solo. Yeah. And even though Ian Fleming didn't really create the show, it sounds like the show's creator very cleverly or craft, cra- craftily approached Ian Fleming uh, to, to get his input and contribution just enough so that they could put his name on it. Because that's the whole thing that they're trying yeah. to do. They're trying to cash in on James Bond. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, but there were some lawsuits, things and, and, and stuff. And I guess the solo name uh, stuck, but uh, I guess it was Par- Paramount. Paramount is the James Bond people. I'm pretty sure. I yeah. Could be wrong. MGM is, I think, are the uncle people. Right. And um, wait, no, it can't be Paramount because that would put, I'm going to oh, look, no. I'm gonna look yeah, that up real quick. Whatever Broccoli was. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. See production you united artists. Oh yeah, yeah, that would always be the iconic mm-hmm. symbol. Yeah, that's that's still one of their one of the one of the franchises that keeps the light on lights on over at uh, UA. I'm sure. Um, yeah. I got a let's see, I got a cool maybe little anecdote for you. I picked up off of uh, uh, I think from Wiki. Um, in the in the pilot, like there was an executive that didn't like the Ilya character. Mm-hmm. And could you go ahead and pronounce his last name for me? Kuryakin. Kuryakin. Yeah. And and the executive was saying like you got to get rid of that that one Russian with the k k, and he couldn't pronounce the name. And he That's was just saying me. right. He was just saying like the one that starts with K, and the showrunners. Uh, there's another, uh, I guess there's another Russian character that also his name starts with a K. And so the guy said, Oh, do you mean that guy? And the executive said, yeah, sure. And oh. so he just agreed with him because he didn't want to get rid of the Ilya character. And so oh. he was like, he was just like kind of uh, using the executive's inability to pronounce the name. And then wow. uh, by the time the executive found out uh, the contracts had already been signed. Wow. No, I did not know that story. That's a fun little behind the scenes. Well, he was a fan favorite. That's why they kept him. And uh, yeah, because I think they started out that it was going to be Robert Vaughn as the main character. But uh, I want to go. All right. So Dave passed by into his room like quite a few minutes ago. I motioned. I'm here. Oh, there he is. I've been here for a while. Oh. You guys are just in the middle of a conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. You should have just shouted out, buddy. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, dude, having a lot of fun talking with Fred here. Um, <laughs> Sounds like it. You're, you're Sounds gonna, like Fred knows quite a bit about this. <laughs> you're gonna have to go back, and you're gonna have. I'm. It's gonna be interesting. I want you to go back and listen um, to this. You know what? I'd love you to do. I mean, if this is a spies for us, I'd love you to take on the three days of the Condor. Oh, it's, def- it's definitely on our list. It's, it's yeah, that's on our list. That's a it's big so, one. It's so prophetic because to me, it predicts the Iran Contra affair because it's about an organization within the CIA, and they play these. Have you seen it? Not yet. Oh my God, it's unbelievable. Not because yet. Because I've, I've got a massive a, heart on for it. 
yeah, it's a precursor to what we would later on see when Ali North said, I think, you know, the, the director, meaning Casey, thought an organization within the CIA would be a good idea. That's what this is about. A rogue org. Max uh, Sido is in it. Faye Dunaway. And of course, Robert Redford. Um, and, you know, the basic premise, without giving too much away, is they're bookworms. You know, they're in um, this um, building where they, it's a CIA, but they're, they're bookworms. And they're in this uh, building where they're just supposed to read books, right? And they stumble on this um, contingency plan. It was a, it's a novel, but they stumble on this con- contingency plan that um, is something real. So he goes out to lunch and he comes back and they're all killed. They're all shot. They're all killed. So he goes on the run. He doesn't know where to go or why it happened. Um, But he's so, because he's not a field agent, he's unpredictable. They don't know where the hell he is or where to find him. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm sold. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we try to, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever looked at our catalog, but uh, you know, we try to do like all kinds of spy movies. Like we're really mm-hmm. trying to stretch out and and hit all the nodes. And yeah, definitely like those classic uh, 1970s or like 1960s and 1970s Cold War stuff is like kind of our wheelhouse. But uh, you know, that was so far ahead of it. I think it's the one of the best movies I've ever seen. I'm going to grab. I'm going to grab. I'm going to grab some. Uh, uh, something to drink before we start the episode. Uh, I'm going to sure. leave with you with Dave and and what I want you to do is explain to Dave in as much detail as you can in the couple minutes that I'm going to be gone, like why you chose this episode for it. Tell us which episode we're going to watch and why you chose it. And I'll be yeah. right back. Okay. Hey, Dave. Hey, how you doing? Good. Sorry Good. for being a little late. I had to work and had That's to fun. get here. Yeah. Um. I chose this episode because when I first saw the uh, the uh, Facebook, it was say, it said something about Get Smart being the first um, spoof on James Bond. But I said, no, Man from Uncle was, especially this third season, which got kind of really over the top, uh-huh. spooky, you know. Um, right. In fact, that's when they lost it. I don't know. You probably overheard us saying they became campy because they were trying to copy the campiness of Batman, you know. Right. So, so, but I love the music of this third season. It got um, real jazzy with uh, B3, Hammond organ, uh, guitar, bass. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, uh, yeah. And then they tried to reset it in the fourth season. They weren't able to. Uh, Okay. All right, I'm back. You guys ready? Yeah, I'm having trouble finding this DVD, this uh, the episode. Um, okay, you take, that- you take your time with that. What I'm going to do, I'm going to go ahead and, and stop and check and make sure, because I've never recorded on Zoom before. So that was from just before we watched the show for the first time, and we did have Fred along for the ride on that. Uh, and we did record that. I'm going to tell you more about that recording at the end of this episode. Right now, we're going to skip ahead in time until after David and I had watched episodes from all four seasons. Trust me, it's all going to make sense by the end. So we're here to talk about the television series from 1964, seminal spy television series, The Man from UNCLE, which ran only four seasons from 1964 to 1968. 
Um, but was a big hit for for its time. Not not a monster. It's not up in the top five, but uh, you know, it's a pretty pretty important successful show. Um, and we've talked before about the early '60s and and how James Bond with those movies kicked the door open for the spy genre, and everybody else suddenly flooded in. Man from Uncle is pretty much the first to follow Bond through the door. Um. You can really see the influence of Bond on the show, from what we watched, at least. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, Ian Fleming uh, was uh, a consultant, at least. Um, What it looks like to me, I'm not 100% sure of this, but it looks like they were making the show anyways. But uh, the producer had the good idea to approach Fleming and ask him if he would, uh, you know, contribute and consult on the show. Fleming agreed, and they even said, well, hey, could we name the show Ian Fleming's Solo? And Ian Fleming was like, well, I like money, Um, (laughs) even though I'm sure he was already making buckets. At least I hope he was um, from the Bond stuff. The United Artists guys over... Uh, with James Bond said, whoa, 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 uh, Solo is the character in Goldfinger, which we're currently filming. And this is going to make it look like there's, you know, you're, you're, this is no bueno. Um, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's, that would, it would, could possibly kind of suggest to audiences that this was connected directly to the James Bond universe. Uh-huh. And so, they settled uh, after Fleming Fleming signed an affidavit that said his character Solo in Goldfinger has nothing, which it does have nothing to do with uh, Napoleon Solo, who's our main guy in The Man from Uncle. Uh, but the agreement was uh, okay, you can use the name, but you can't uh, put it in your title. The Man from Uncle features uh, it's contemporary for its time, mid Cold War, you know, nineteen sixties. Two agencies, both fictional. First is Uncle. Originally supposed to be vague. They didn't want to specify what it stood for. One of the ideas was that you could kind of project your own uh, ideas onto what it meant. Here's the cool trivia on that. The United Nations was concerned that people would think that it had something to do with them. So they asked. Oh. Yeah. They, they pressured the studio to specify what it stood for and to make sure that it didn't stand for United Nations. And so they came in and decided it stood for the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. Oh, didn't, weren't you the one that spotted that at the end credits? They're like, thanks to the... Yeah, and it was like a little cute joke they had at the end credits. Oh, yeah, that's right. Isn't it... Um, they, they, like, thank the... Thank, they thank Uncle for cooperating with them in making right, the show. Instead of saying Uncle, they write out the whole acronym. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah. making, making it seem like, you know, the way if you made a movie about, you know, I don't know, the the U.S. Army, you would thank them for their cooperation at the end. Well, the funny thing about this, they're doing the same thing, but it's a fictional organization. Uncle, I, I just wanted to mention, too, I, I don't know why I put it here, but uh, that they have five main sections on different continents each with oh. a with a head dude um, that are all like co-equal leaders of Uncle. 
Um, and our guys worked for the North American section. But in two of the episodes that we looked at for doing this podcast uh, involved cooperation with uh, the other sections of the other continents, uh, which is a feature that I enjoyed about the show. Um, yeah, it seems like they have a office in pretty much any of the allied territories, I guess. Well, uh, I pulled, yeah, I pulled, I pulled it from a, a, a map in Waverly's office. Uh-huh. Uh, you can see where the five heads, where the five stations are. They're all basically all the main continents, the populated continents, North America, South uh-huh. America. There's one in India for Asia, one in Africa. What am I missing? Oh, and Europe, Europe, of course. Right. Like, I think they had a Berlin one. So I presume they had one all over Europe. Yes. Um, and, you know, I don't, you know, just speaking of Europe real quick, just this morning I was thinking, you know, if Pluto's not a planet, then Europe shouldn't be a fucking continent. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> neither here nor there, but it just suddenly right. occurred to me. Like, how, where, where do these guys get off calling themselves a continent? And Greenland is not. I don't know. Maybe I don't know what the definition of continent is. Thrush is the antithesis of uncle. Um, and so, yeah, speaking of the, you know, the five different, you know, stations they have like all around the world. The idea here is that Thrush is such a dangerous organization to everyone that even governments that are ideologically opposed to each other, such as the U.S. and the Soviet Union, would right. would cooperate to defend against Thresh, um, which is which is a cool idea, and that's part of why our two guys we have a, a an American and a Russian seems to be a Russian national. I think they don't make that big of a Kuryakin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's a cool thing about Thresh. This didn't come up in the show, but in a series of novels that were based on the show. Uh, in those, it was revealed that Thrush was founded by Professor Moriarty's like right-hand man after Moriarty's death in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Oh, really? So, yeah. So based on, if you take the books as canon, then the man from uncle and the Sherlock Holmes stories exist in the same universe. Oh, that's pretty cool. All right. It gets weirder. Who directed both the Sherlock, Holmes, the modern Sherlock Holmes films, and the most recent Man from Uncle film? Wasn't that guy Richie? It was Guy Ritchie. <laughs> so that, that's cool that he picked up on that. <laughs> I think so. I don't think it would have really flown for him to have tried to connect them. But mm-hmm. if you think about it, especially the kind of bad guys, I if I remember the Sherlock Holmes films correctly. Um, they seemed like exactly the kind of people that, uh, in a modern day would be like, you know, like thrush. Right. Um, but I don't think, I don't think that would, to tie them in and actually make that a, you know, a shared universe kind of thing. I do not think would fly with audiences. Um, but yeah, fun trivia. Anyways, how do you like, uh, how do you like our characters in the show? I don't know. The the show, it was kind of cool watching, like, old stuff. Like, cause it's fun seeing, like, how things uh, were, I guess, filmed differently or portrayed differently. Um, but a lot of it is very television-y, so it kind of has that choppy 
like um, story progression. So I, I don't really think there was much of any characters. I was more kind of just watching the episode. You know what I mean? I do like the boss, but I usually tend to like the the old experienced. He's kind of fun. What I did like was it wasn't as sleazy as uh, the Bond films, even though that one episode we did watch with Fred uh, was kind of creeper at the girls' high school. <laughs> but some of the other ones, I, I felt less uncomfortable than I would have in some of the older Bond films. Uh, yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, I think I think they kind of... Um, I, I feel like they felt like they needed to uh, kind of mirror that James Bond, that Sean Connery slimy energy a little bit, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they didn't go nearly as far with it, uh, right. to their credit, in my opinion. I do like, I do like, you know, I don't, I'm not a hyper fan of like old timey Nick at night kind of fair. Um, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I certainly kind of can appreciate it when it comes out across my plate and, and especially under the context of this podcast where we kind of go in with a, analytic eye and try to educate ourselves more about television and movie history uh, was definitely enjoyable on that level. For me, I do really like Robert Vaughn um, and David McCallum. Uh, Robert Vaughn, uh, like I said, while, while we were watching it, um, he does some amazing teeth acting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think... I think the actors are fine. Like I don't have anything against the actor. It's just when you ask me, what do you think about our characters? I, I don't really see much of a character in the shows. You know what I mean? Because everything's kind of filmed like quick and here, let's get to the story. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the acting is pretty spot on. And, and I remember watching this and you were mentioning the teeth acting. I, th- I think, yeah, he does a great job of that. Another thing he does really well is he's, he's always like, even when, when, you know, just when he's like interacting with someone or just following along behind them, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and they're not necessarily paying close attention to him. He's, he's always kind of just looking at him and really looks like he's, he's thinking, he's evaluating, uh, he's making internal decisions about them. Um, and then Ilya seems like, you know, kind of more reserved. They're not as like, I see what you're saying. Like they're definitely not as, uh, starkly drawn characters as right. you might see in other shows. I mean, who really knows anything about um, Napoleon Solo other than that he works for Uncle? Uh, score by Jerry Goldsmith, which was, uh, which means Mr. Goldsmith is either older than I thought he was or was very young when he did the work for this show. He did the original score, which they altered for each season in an attempt as the sixties was booming along uh, to mm-hmm. make it kind of more jazzy and, and more rock and roll. Goldsmith did not like the alterations. I wanted to flag that I, now, now I couldn't tell if the end credits were, I didn't go back and verify that the end credits were different in each season. I think they're mm-hmm. actually the same, but I thought those that's the best piece of music with the, with the kind of flute, the floating, soaring flute kind of running through the whole thing and yeah uh, a lot of the background music was kind of cool it's very uh upbeat or uh you know it kind of keeps it yeah it was especially for shows at the time i think i think it was a pretty pretty decent score the show 
usually uh, has a formula. Well, it definitely has a formula in the titles of the episodes. It's always the blah, blah, blah affair. <laughs> the this affair or the that affair um, kind of ties into my thing about uh, when we first started this and started making our list of spy movies and spy television show uh, the the preponderance of the word the being the first word in the title. It's always, you know, the, the Ipcrest file, uh, the something affair, the, the man who knew too much. Um, I think, I think they're trying to give, I think it's trying to give like a kind of an air of this actually happened. Right. Kind of thing. <laughs> There's very few recurring characters, really just our two main guys and their boss, Mr. Waverly. And in each episode, pretty much they introduce in the credits at the beginning uh, a guest star villain and a guest star innocent or everyman character, as we like to call them on this show. Supposed to be like a more audience relatable character because we still have to remember that even though uh, James Bond had proven that a spy could be a hero, uh, it's possible that TV show producers were still not entirely certain that audiences would fully identify with a secret agent character. Right. So kind of felt the need to, to put someone in there that, that could be someone that the audience could relate to a little more directly. My understanding is that there's almost always an innocent character, but I had to note in four, we, we reviewed four episodes for this podcast and there was only an innocent character in two of them in at least three uh the villain was played by like a, a heavy hitter very well-known actor and i i think the innocence like not so much i think they just grabbed you know anyone from that was lying around from central casting or something i were I thought, they ever like up and coming or something and then ended up getting work elsewhere i don't know i know that uh, there's an episode that has um who plays Captain Kirk? William Shatner? Yeah. Has both William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy in it. Um, oh, really? But I don't I don't know <laughs> I don't know what roles they played. Uh mention as well, like what the other variations uh exist of, of the piece that we're looking at. Uh in this case, there's ten two part episodes spread out through the four seasons. And each of those was released in Europe as a movie some including extra action scenes. And in some cases, the TV series has extra, not extra scenes, but scenes that were cut for the movies. So they're a little bit different. There was also a spinoff show uh, called The Girl from Uncle. And of course, in 2015, the Guy Ritchie film. Uh, I know it didn't do well uh, in theaters, but from what I'm reading, people who have seen it describe it as as being a lot better than audiences at the time give it credit for oh well we should add it to the list then <laughs> oh it's oh it's been there oh yeah for sure yeah. what we're going to discuss in the briefing is uh how different they approached each season um you know uh they went from like regular to trying to be more camp and then tried to get more serious um and i i kind of saw it based on the four episodes we watched but uh, for the most part, it did have kind of that television feel, fast pace, like let's move the plot along type of thing. Um, it, it was cool to kind of watch, uh, you know, finding out how much of an impact this show had 
um, in perpetuating the spy genre momentum, I guess. Oh, yeah. Uh, You you could definitely see a lot. And I'm sure there's a lot of uh, films that um, were inspired with at least like one of the episodes. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Let's uh let's take a brief look at season one, episode twenty-three. Uh I picked these, I, I just did a quick check of like, I don't know, what are what do people say are the best episodes of the show? And mm-hmm. you know, just the first website I found, I just took their word for it, uh, for each season. For season one, the episode twenty-three, the brain killer affair mm-hmm. was what we rolled up. Uh <laughs> see <laughs> Season one, even though the pilot, now the pilot was filmed in color, but season one, it's a black and white television show. I guess the thing to point out about this is at this, just right at this time in history, that would have been, I guess, a budget issue and not an artistic choice. Um, I think this is kind of, we're at the dawn of color where like, I guess your big prime time television shows are going out in color. Uh, But you know, you're, afternoon stuff or your your less uh flagshipy kind of affairs are i guess i assume for budgetary reasons uh sticking with the black and white right um seasons two three and four because of the success of season one i guess that says you know tells the studio okay we can spend the money we can we can we can and should show this in color because audiences really like the show um but yeah season one uh, oh yeah, the the brain killer affair uh, recap is uh, Waverly, our guy's boss, is incapacitated by Thrush with a kind of a, a poison that's enough to put him, I guess, kind of in a coma, but not kill him. Uh, and in that state, he's taken to a clinic that is completely Thrush infiltrated and and Thrush controlled. Uh, where they're using hypnos- hypnosis to try to get secrets out of him. He yeah, made- th- that whole thing kind of bugged me right off the bat. This is the head of Uncle, and like uh, they don't have proper security or watch on him. And then on top of that, take him to a hospital that isn't an Uncle Rand spot. But whatevs. Uh, yeah, and the, the whole uh, semi-conscious coma thing... I was really confused about at the beginning, like what was the purpose of it until they actually showed they were trying to get secrets out of people and that they were successful at it. And then I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You're absolutely right about like, it's kind of really stupid that they just take them to uh, a clinic that, you know, isn't, I mean, they should have their own hospital, right? You know, they should have a, a place that they have vetted and, and control and can trust. Um, it's it's very suspicious that he's taken to basically a clinic that is run by thrush it it appears <laughs> I, mean, right. I mean it doesn't even it doesn't even look like it's you know just has been infiltrated i mean they've got uh they've got two way mirrors they've got secret doors uh all sorts of shit up in that yeah but the you know interrogating a guy that's in a coma that is that is kind of solid. Uh, yeah. The other parts of it all just uh, were fiddly to me. Um, supposedly, you know, there's this, uh, 
there's this concept like before Waverly succumbs, he manages to to whisper to Solo like a couple names, and and says have killed, or at least Solo thinks he said have killed, but later realizes oh no they were only half killed. <laughs> right. Yeah, and in the way that they're doing that with Waverly makes sense, but the other three guys is a lot weirder, I think. I mean, because there's one guy who's just kind of in a vegetative state, mm-hmm. but randomly snaps out of it and and you know tries to hit people in the back of the head with the hammer. Um, oh, the brother. Yeah, I wonder if they were still learning, and he was just kind of like a guinea pig. Oh, you mean Thrush still? Oh, okay. Like a failed experiment. Right. Because I think the lady had mentioned something like that. That, yeah, that we didn't have the resource. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. The other two guys, I'm kind of confused as to why they were selected. Right. And also, like, like the technique itself. One of them, uh, it just seems that Thrush, the diplomat, it just seems that Thrush has, like, really messed around with, like, he was a very successful diplomat and they've just caused a bunch of his missions to fail so Uh, that his career is on a downward spiral. Um, And then the other guy is like, I guess a a shipping magnet and they fucked his business up enough that he like commits suicide. Um, (laughs) So I, I just, you know, between the four people, I don't see a consistency in like what, what is the plan here? You know, yeah. only the Waverly thing makes sense. The, the other stuff is like, I don't know, kind of shotgun-ish. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they were more focused on the the idea of the mind control um, than, I guess, uh, making sense. Plus, it was like one of their first episodes. And, you know, so I guess, but yeah. And there seems to be a mind control theme, at least with the episodes we watched. Tell me about it. Well, you know, there's the music box one and the one that we watched with Fred. And then there's this one where they're like kind of in a semi-coma, I guess. Uh, then there was the weird radiation that like basically incapacitated people. Right. Attacks on the uh, nervous system. Right. So th- there seemed to be a lot of... But, you know, this time period seems like that was what everybody was terrified of, was like mind control and radiation and stuff like that. So maybe... Maybe they were just kind of like playing on that. Or maybe we just happened to get the four episodes that all had this in it. <laughs> very much. Well, very, no, very much so. What I think is happening here is okay, you got the 60s and you've got some people that are being captured overseas that are uh, flipping the other side. <laughs> yeah. The, the red side of things. And people not being able to comprehend, like, how, how, how could you possibly. Like the idea of act of intentionally turning away from American values is so incomprehensible to people that it has mm-hmm. to be mind control. Oh then, right, yeah. <laughs> and then you're looking at like the 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 dropout culture and the hippies and stuff, and like uh, you know people kind of joining what um, white bread Americans looked at and thought of as cults but we're actually just people experimenting with, you know, different ways to live mm-hmm. and, and to go about things at the same time. I think this is in the period of time. Uh, it was the fifties when like mind control seemed to be like something that scientists were starting to posit would 
be possible. I think it was like considered like leading edge technology. And these days, like to you and me, when we see any kind of mind control plot, we think cheesy, campy. Yeah. Right. Um, can't, you know, this, this is obviously a movie that, you know, we're not supposed to take too seriously. I think it might've been <laughs> much, I think it might've been much different uh, for, for, for original audiences of the man from uncle. I think that they might've been much more like, Oh my God. You yeah. Know, right. This Completely is scary shit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had a, I had a note that I almost deleted from my notes where I had wanted to say that the first, that this episode, the brain killer affair had almost a kind of horror uh, movie kind of vibe to it. Yeah. It did kind of have like a looming kind of, yeah, it, it, it did kind of have, especially with the black and white. And I think we've been trained now post like so much color for decades that when we see black and white, it's supposed to be like, feel creepy. Yeah. Or dark. Can. Well, yeah. I mean, but then you could also watch a, an episode of like Gunsmoke or something where, you know, it's black and white, but they're just out in the open air and it doesn't have that. Like, well, But I mean, for us these days, mm-hmm. you know, like anytime black and white's used, it's either used for like some super artistic reason or I think more commonly to make things feel creepy or horrific. You know, like you get Schindler's List, you know, that was all black and white in the 90s. Um, you know, uh, I was just watching a documentary with a friend and they had like the commentators in like black and white. It was about like the history of the samurai in Japan. And uh, even when it was colored, it was like, kind of had like a grayish tone to it or a filter they used. Mm-hmm. So I think back then they would have been more used to like, okay, this is color and this is black and white. But for us these days, I think for you, like someone like you or me, I think we've been trained to see black and white as something uh, for an artistic statement or like usually something to be more scary, I guess. Well, Psycho famously was, uh, you know, intentionally filmed in black and white, right. uh, which I didn't know for many years. Uh, but uh, yeah, eventually I found out like, no, they totally had color uh, back then. And, and it was actually kind of weird uh, choice, uh, great choice by Hitchcock to film that one mm-hmm. in black and white. Um, I had to come back and put the note back in. <laughs> like I said, I almost kind of, I, I, I actually had deleted it. I went back and I put it in when I found out uh, who the actress is that plays the head villain in here is uh-huh. Elsa Lanchester. Okay. She's best remembered. She's her possibly best remembered role is she played the bride of Frankenstein. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Nice. So that made me think like, okay, no, it's not just me. <laughs> right. <laughs> there might be something to this. Um, well, that's, that's that episode. This is, you tell me, like, give me your, give me your feeling. Like I kind of, I kind of looked at, at a few uh, vectors of information, mostly like the plot, <laughs> like the plot yeah. in general, the sliminess issue, because I wanted to compare it to bond and uh, the level of humor, because that's one thing that supposedly like went it, that we were told to look for, like that the sense of humor would rise and fall in the episode. How did you feel about on those vectors or anything else you want to talk about? Like, how did you like this episode? 
the brain cancer. Well, the story was kind of like a like like I said, you know, this is a lot of television, especially kind of drama ish television, or like these like quick off episodes were written specifically to get the plot driving. So the story was kind of like a typical like here's the villains, here's the good guys. Oh, the villains almost win, the good guys win, you know. And then here's some interesting technology that'll make you think, you know. Uh, so that that was fine considering the time period. Um, the sliminess was way down. Um, I did want to point out one thing though, because you know we like to talk about tradecraft on this. Uh, we got a big theme from our mice acronym, you know, money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Uh, the the leading lady, innocent, who's the sister of the brother that got basically uh, put in the vegetative state. Um, Solo keeps paying her for information. Um, he even has a line, money works a lot faster than arguing with her, you know? Um, and then later on when he needs her to do something really big and she's not willing to, cause she's just trying to live her life. Not only does he offer a shitload of money, but prior to that, he talks about that he can help her. He might be able to help save her brother, you know? So there's, there's, there's I don't know, maybe an ideology there or a compromise there would be going on. So it's, it was very big highlighted on how he um, acquired her or recruited her as an asset. And we, we actually got a lot of good time spent on it. So I was actually kind of impressed for a show at that time period. Yeah. I think that, her- that they didn't make it easy. He didn't just show up and be like, I'll give you $5 for info. <laughs> she actually was like resistant. Then he he's listening to her talk and she's like, look, I don't have time. You see all these mannequins. I got to do all this by tomorrow morning or I'm going to lose a big client. And he just pulls out a 20, you know, and, and as the story goes on, it develops more into like a relationship of like an established asset. And then when he needs something really big, he kind of really puts it on and offers way more money, you know. So I, I, I was impressed with that as far as this episode, like this show goes that we act. There was a number of moments where we actually got like a good chunk of some, you know, pretty well executed tradecraft. Okay, I could, I could, I could see it that I could see it that way. I, I felt a little, I felt a little uncomfortable with the way they they played uh, the money on her. I felt, I don't know, it just, I felt, I felt bad watching that some of those. Oh, scenes. I felt bad too. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely felt bad. It wasn't like, hey, this is a great deal for the both of them. He's like, ah, I'm picking up on the fact that money's tight and that you have to take care of this brother. What if I made those problems go away? It, it is definitely kind of creeper, you know, in like, a, I'm taking advantage of this situation. I've recognized that you really need this. I have what you really need. Now dance for me. It definitely was uncomfortable. The part I'm that, just saying. The, the part that bugs me is that uh, to the extent that there were any humorous uh, vibes in the show, that all of those were basically kind of laughing at her uh, oh, patheticness. Yeah. Over the yeah they over the yeah. subject of money, and I didn't really yeah like they that. definitely no yeah it it was very uncomfortable I could I completely agree I, I uh, I'm not saying this was like you know the best thing ever uh, that humanity's ever accomplished or anything, you know what I mean like oh it, yeah it wasn't it wasn't like a nice thing you know but it I I thought it was well executed and the fact that a TV show like this gave us that amount of time in developing it I was kind of surprised with. Sure, sure. Yeah. Again, I just didn't. I just didn't appreciate being expected to giggle 
uh, right? Over, yeah, over yeah. The, over the issues, <laughs> which is what I think the show kind of wanted us to do in a couple yeah. places. I call it my least favorite of the four. Um, I don't know if you thought about it in those terms. I'm not giving it a, a star. Oh, right of anything. all four, but of of the four, did you think about in advance? Uh, you don't. You don't have to. But did you think about like which no, one was your favorite? I, I mean, favorite? I did not like. I did not like the one we watched with Fred okay. at all. Okay, that was definitely my least. This one at least had stuff for me to like, kind of think about a little bit. But the yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get to we're we're gonna take a deep dive into the one we watched with Fred. But I that's probably my least of the four. And then probably the season two one that we're about to talk about was probably. Let's talk. Time. Let's talk about season two, episode twenty three, the Moon Glow Affair. Uh, yeah. Do you want to remind me of the the overall plot of that one? Yeah, this is. Oh no, this is the ad agency one. No, no, this is definitely not my second to least un or least <laughs> favorite. No, no, this is actually cool because. Because uh, it didn't even focus on Solo and Ilya. It focused on uh, one minute. First of all, uh, all right, well, I, let's talk about the premise before I get all uh, uh, let's do, fanboy. Let's do, sure. Yeah. Uh, so um, um, this is the one with the radiation that, like, fucks up the nervous system one, right? It is. We start yeah. out. We start out with our guys being suspicious of a secret lab underneath a cosmetics corporation headquarters i couldn't tell are they in a mansion or something it's it, it looks seems, like it seems to like be the place where they do their main business of this i think it was like a corporate building but it looked like they also had party area but i mean if you're that level of a corporation you're gonna have all kinds of rooms i guess but um yeah it was like in the basement of the regular building or something is where the, they um, were doing their lab stuff right and so solo breaks in and there's a scientist waiting for him and starts flashing this light at him, but it's not just a light. I, I guess it's sending microwaves or radiation or something that it completely disorients solo and he can't talk and they have to bring him in. Um, and what they do is they introduce this new character and she is like kind of like a upstart or an up and coming new agent with an uncle and they're going to have her get a job at the agency and i don't know if it's an ad agency or a modeling agency but she's basically getting a secretary job uh and her partner that she's going to work with uh is another agent who's a seasoned experienced agent and also happens to be played by mr roper so <laughs> i was really excited I, I was going nuts watching this episode with todd and i had to figure it out and like yeah that, that was definitely mr roper playing a badass spy uh with this young uh, beautiful new rookie agent in with an uncle who's who's not just like a rookie. She's not like a bumbling rookie. She's like one of those like I've gone to school and gotten like four point five GPAs. <laughs> like she knew all of the rules and was like, "Why is he coming on the field with me?" I know men of a certain age are generally taken off the field. Yeah, you know, like so she like was citing like statutes and stuff. So it was so it was it was like kind of like this big uh, contrast between the two and. They were the main focus. Ilya ends up getting incapacitated at some point, and they're not even in the move the show. We get what, like maybe five or ten minutes of them. The highlight is her, and then Mister Roper. So it it was fun. I liked it. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was an interesting episode. Like you say, at the very beginning, Solo gets hit with what I call drunk radiation, and, <laughs> and Ilya gets captured. 
And then okay. we have an entire episode focused on two other agents, um, right. which, uh, again, great on you for recognizing Norman Fell as, as yes. Mr. Roper. Uh, I wouldn't have caught that. Um, and they had, I was going nuts. I was going completely nuts. different. They had the whole, they played the whole age thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought very cutely, uh, it was, and it wasn't slimy or creep. No, you're right. It was very cute. All of it was very, very cute. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the, in the background, well, let's see, I guess we'll talk about this first. Um, the, yeah. So the, I couldn't tell if there were any other episodes where we focus on other uncle agents other than solo and mm-hmm. Ilya. Mm-hmm. And if this was the only one where they did that, then maybe we shouldn't have picked it to cover if we're just covering like how the show usually is, if this is an anomaly. Mm-hmm. But I want to say like, I could, I could see a show have been like really cool if they had done a lot more of this. I think they could have been onto something here. I would like to see, you know, if I could, uh, you know, uh, go back and reconceptualize the entire show. I would have had right. like maybe three different pairs of secret agents and just uh, rotate the episodes folk on who we're focusing on. But the other four agents are always like kind of involved in the background and right. maybe, and maybe start interconnecting like what, you know, this mission, what influence maybe it had on what the other mission was doing over there would have been uh, really exciting to me. Um, yeah. I think that would have been a cool idea. So it was had- it was really interesting seeing them like not be part of it, like they were just kind of in the background while it was focused on the on the two new agents. Um, but wait, so what is the villain's plot? They, okay. They're trying to sabotage NASA, and, and so by it's called by the Moonglow Affair, right? And there's a there's a this is so fucking weird. There is a NASA launch of uh, like that. I, I guess like uh, what the Apollo you would call it the Apollo mission. This is the Moon Glow mission. Okay, right. And simultaneously, the villains. Okay, well, the villain is also like uh, working on uh, plans for Thresh's space program, and he's uh-huh. also planning to sabotage the NASA Moon Glow launch uh, with uh, the drunk with a different variation of the drunk radiation, what they're doing right. is they're radi- radiating food. And then if you eat the food, you'll get hit by the effects. Um, and it seems that the, the whole reason uncle is investigating this cosmetics place is because they're wondering if there could be a connection between the moon glow launch of the spaceship with the fact that this cosmetic agency is also planning a launch of a moon glow lipstick. Yeah. The glow in the dark lipstick. They're even like timing a big, like the big moon glow lipstick launch party with at the same time as the moon glow NASA mission, which there's no reason for those to be connected at all. And that was annoying to me. Yeah. It was the only connection. Like so, the the cosmetic agency, I guess, is the cover, uh, and I guess they would have some sort of because they can make the lipstick glow. But why were they calling it Moon Glow? Right, like you're talking about the connection between the names being the same was kind of silly. 
yeah, that's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Um, but but uh, that, that's how I get what her, what her name H, April, right? The the April, the young agent. April is our she, young agent. She gets hired as a secretary, and I guess the head of the cosmetic agency sees her, and he's like, "No, you have to be our new Miss Moonglow," which kind of gets her in a bigger step into the door of getting more information. Um, because she's going to be the one that the model for wearing the Moonglow lipstick. Uh, I guess he is. So- he is our villain. Is bizarrely obsessed with micromanaging the lipstick campaign. Yeah. When, <laughs> you know when he should be focused on his thrush responsibilities, right. which I guess is could be an interesting choice. I mean, as a character, maybe that's kind of a flaw of his. Is like that even though he's got more important things to do, his ego is just so big that he has to be micromanaging, like just everything about everything, even the details of his cover operation, which Uh he should be leaving to his sister, but he just can't uh, in a very egotistic misogynist way, which uh, I don't want to say is, you know, uh, you know, it didn't annoy me because he was definitely portrayed in a bad light. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just kind of funny, like kind of funny. I was sitting there wondering like, dude, why are you, why are you so concerned about like, you know, what fucking dress she's going to, what kind of fat pick the fabric and pick the right girl and making all these decisions, dude, you've got thrush rocket plans to deal with. You've got major, yeah. much more important <laughs> things to do than running this lipstick campaign. Yeah. Absolutely. I thought, yeah. And it, and it, and one of the reasons he got involved is when he spotted her and then he, I think wanted to sleep with her at some point. And, and that's why he really wasn't listening to like the warnings of his sister. Um, and, uh, yeah, it definitely was. One of the cool things was like, you have this like really creeper, you know, cosmetic agency owner. That's like, kind of like sleezing up on the girl models, but the, relationship between April and Mr. Roper was very professional. There was like no love interest there. It was just like experienced agent with like a new agent, you know, type of thing. Um, I, I kind of respected that. Yeah. No sliminess whatsoever from Norman fell. Thankfully, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, that all the sliminess is put on the thrush guy in this, in this one. Um, I like this one better than the first one. I'll call it my second favorite episode that we watched. Mostly, I really did like the energy. The April character uh, was really competent and got to do most of the heavy lifting, and I liked watching her work. Uh, mm-hmm. While And Norman Fell was uh, really surprisingly good. Um, as I say, like these can, these can, the villainous plot was pretty janky, uh, you know, with this whole, like, no reason for this connection between the moon glow lipstick and the moon glow mission that they're sabotaging. Right. <laughs> um, glow in the dark lipstick. I'm calling that stupid. Uh, <laughs> did not like it. Right. Um, there was, there was the, the humor that we got in this one was good humor. I thought not jokey, not gaggy, like get smart kind of stuff. Right. Um, but uh, the humor that I saw in the show was mostly like playing around their age differences. Uh, yeah. And, and was, I thought really handled really well. And, and I thought not just funny, but also just cute and endearing. Yeah, it was nice. I, I enjoyed it. 
Um, and 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 a lot of the jokes were situational. It wasn't just like like you said, gaggy. It was it was kind of like it was. I think it was more thought out. You know what I mean? And we are going to cut it here after having discussed episodes from seasons one and two uh, of The Man from Uncle. Next week, we will come back with episodes from seasons three and four. There is also a piece of bonus content that we've prepared for you for the sufficiently interested. It's available right now on our website, spieslikeus.net. What we did, we did record our initial viewing of the season three, episode one, the Her Master's Voice Affair. That recording is synced with the episode, so if you want to, you could play the recording along with the TV episode like a commentary track. You get it? Uh, if you don't have access to that TV episode, I will just mention briefly, you can get it from Amazon Prime Video for just $1.99, no sign-up required, or get it from wherever. Amazon is not paying us for this. Uh, there is a link in the to get the bonus commentary track. You can find the link in the show notes. Uh, whether you're listening right now on your favorite podcast app or if you're listening at spieslikeus.net, either way, it's uh, basically a link to a YouTube video. Uh, next week, we will begin with a general discussion of that particular episode and also a general discussion of Season 4, Episode 1, The Summit 5 Affair. Uh, we're then going to do an in-depth tradecraft analysis from the Her Master's Voice episode. So, once again, the bonus content commentary track is completely optional, but if you are going to listen to it, the best time to do that would be in the next week before our regular Part 2 episode is released. I hope that all makes sense. Uh, check it out. And uh, looking forward to talking at you guys soon the preceding transmission sampled the songs ice cold by audio nautics enter the party by kevin mcleod and sound effects from freesound.org attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net editing by todd hostetler <laughs>